0: This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the Rabbi's Husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom, of a biblical passage with a fellow seeker of truth. I am delighted today to be joined by John Steinberg, the founder of Cheddar, the business news channel familiar to everybody under 35 and a lot of people older than it. John recently sold Cheddar to Altice and is now the president of Altice News and Advertising. He was formerly the CEO of the DailyMail.com North America and the president and CEO of BuzzFeed, widely known as the premier media entrepreneur of his generation, John is also a board member of Tempo Israel in New York City and a favorite cigar-smoking companion of the rabbi's husband.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're here. So welcome to the rabbi's husband. So, um, John, your chosen passage is actually not from uh, the Torah or the Bible, but it's a rabbinic commentary. Tell us about the rabbinic commentary and uh, why it's important to you.
1: Okay, so it is from actually the fourth rabbi, the rabbi Maharash. And the Yiddish of it is, and I'll try to get the pronunciation right, is lahakkahala araber. And what that means is, the world says that if you cannot crawl under an obstacle, try to leap over it. However, I say leap over it in the first place. And so the Yiddish of that is just leap over it in the first place.
0: Okay. What was the context of when he was giving this uh, advice? What problem do you think he was trying to solve?
1: I don't know the exact usage of it, or whether the, there was a letter or specific advice that he was giving. It was actually brought up to me by the rabbi of the Palm Beach Synagogue uh, when I was going through some challenges. He actually pointed me into the direction of this passage.
0: Well, Moshe is a very wise rabbi,
1: so uh, Rabbi Moshe Shiner, yeah, at the Palm Beach Synagogue. He's extraordinary. And you know, there, there's many different readings that you can have into this. I mean, the, the first is basically that. You know, you want to go high, you don't want to go low. That the world says that you should try to crawl under an obstacle, that you should try to be weak or meek or fearful in the face of an obstacle and just get under it. And whereas the Rebbe here is saying, be bold, have conviction, have energy, which is an important part of Judaism, as you know, and leap over it. Approach it with gusto. Approach it with energy and enthusiasm. And then that is the better way to tackle the obstacle in the first place. Don't go low in the first place. Go high in the first place.
0: So in other words, don't pretend it's going to go away. Don't act as though it's not there. In fact, uh, almost embrace the obstacle. Acknowledge the problem in the most enthusiastic kind of way and leap over it.
1: And actually, if you go to habad.org and you read one of their commentaries on it, they say that you know the, the Nike expression, "Just do it," that this is basically a precursor to just do it," that it can also be read that way, so that rather than you know perseverate rather than over and over again, to your point, mark, kind of feel fear or worry or be indecisive, just do it, just jump over the obstacle, go for it.
0: It's interesting you bring up fear because uh, the commandment not to fear is the uh, single most stated commandment in all the Torah. 80 times we are told not to fear, which I think it's ubiquity, I think, shows us just how prevalent it was then and how prevalent it is now. I mean, if it wasn't that big a deal, if people weren't afraid of things all the time, there would not have been the need for 80 mentions of it all in the context of don't fear.
1: Right, and then I think there's also an element of it, which is be creative in the first place. Don't take the novel creative approach only when you failed at the conventional approach take the creative, bold approach in the first place. Also very Jewish.
0: So uh, let's get some practical examples because you know the, the rabbi's husband's all about uh, unearthing the uh, practical and the completely relevant um, in Torah and biblical passages. So how is this practical and how can it help people just live happier, better,
1: and more meaningful lives today? Another saying that I'm really fond of was attributed to John Malone, the fam- famous cable entrepreneur, but then I was told he actually didn't say it. But still, the person who told me it, uh, I I still basically like the saying in general, is the conventional wisdom is usually right and seldom profitable. Now, that's a really hard one to kind of wrap your head around. The conventional wisdom, what everybody's doing is usually the right thing to do. However, the long odds thing. The thing which is the unlikely to work out thing, that is the thing that will have the positive consequences, the profits, the you know, the out-earning kind of success if you do it. And that maps very nicely to where we started with this commentary, which is you want to do the bold thing. And look, now you may fall. When you try to go over, you may fall. In fact, going under is probably easier than going over. But going over is where if you happen to actually make it over and you take the risk you're going to see all the success. And I, you know, I, I feel like that's the case in every startup that I've done. I, I always say that it's basically about placing a series of bets. If you're not doing something which is long odds, there really is no chance of you building anything that's significant or different or unique.
0: That's a great point. And, and you know, getting back to what your, your quote from Malone or whoever it was who actually said it, he said that the conventional wisdom is usually right, which means sometimes it's not, right? So basically the lesson is you have to try to identify the times when the conventional wisdom is not right. Albeit, it might be seldom, but it's going to be there. And that's where the prophets exist. How do you analyze this piece of rabbinic wisdom in the context of uh, one of Calvin Coolidge's famous lines, which he said, if you see 10 troubles coming down the road, you can be sure that nine will run into the ditch before they reach you.
1: That maps to one of my other favorite sayings, which I, I strive to actually live according to, but is hard, which is never trouble, trouble till trouble troubles you. Well, Let's unpack that. Yeah, which is basically the things that you think are going to be the problems end up in the ditch, to Calvin Coolidge's point. And it's really the ones that you don't see coming. It's really the things that you don't worry about that end up causing you problems, which basically means that anxiety and worry is really wasted energy, because the things that you're spending that you think you've got the foresight to kind of know are going to be the problems are never the problems.
0: Very interesting. I, I guess the reason for that is that the world is so vastly complex that no one can see all the different opportunities and challenges that lie ahead of them. And those that we do see are really only a few of the existing data set. So what you're saying is people spend lots of time worrying about things that won't ultimately afflict them, which does not mean they won't get afflicted. It just means they'll likely be afflicted by all kinds of other things that they're not anticipating.
1: I'll I'll do one better. I spend a lot of time. I'm a huge worrier. And, you know, This is part of me trying to get out of the state of mind of worry has been to, to think about this idea that the nine out of 10 end up in the ditch side, you know, the idea of going over of jumping over means that you need to live life with that fearlessness, with that boldness, not be caught up in the ideas of worries and know that basically when you try to go over, when you try to jump over the obstacle, there's a good shot that you're going to clip your heel or something like that and fall. But ultimately, that is where the learning will come from, right? And that if you're constantly trying to just crawl under obstacles, you don't have any big failure. You don't have any big success. And when you have failure, you don't, you don't have the failures to actually learn from.
0: Right. And if, you, and if you leap and you fall, you're on the ground either way, whether you crawled or you fell, you end you're, you're up on the ground.
1: You move forward. I mean, that's exactly true, which kind of goes back to your point that most obstacles in life, you know, if it doesn't kill you, you are still alive and you are on the other side of the obstacle.
0: Right, your analysis about, about leaping over, is act, it, it's really resonant in the Torah in the sense that we are told several times in very important places that the kind of moral ambition of the Jew is to walk in God's ways. And actually, halakha means walking. So why walking? Why not standing, sitting re- reverentially, standing piously, why walking? Well, what happens when you walk? What happens when you walk is you get lost, you fall, you trip, you meet somebody or something that could be a danger, It's somewhat of a perilous process, yet we're told to walk in God's ways, constantly be moving, accepting all the risks. When one would think, what would a religious tradition tell you to do with God? Well, stand before him. That's not what our tradition says. Our tradition says walk with him.
1: Rabbi Shiner says that why do we have all of the holidays stacked so closely together, even the smaller holidays, right? We go right from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur to I guess maybe Simchat Torah. I don't know. If was- well, I
0: mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, Sukkot is a few days after Yom Kippur. I mean, Rosh Hashanah, plus 10 Yom Kippur, plus a few Sukkot. And the same thing at Purim, then you get to Pesach. Absolutely right.
1: Right. So Moishe's point there is that Judaism tells us to keep moving along, to keep moving forward, that you can't bring good to the world, that you can't do good deeds if you're not in motion, which sort of, which sort of makes sense. If you're sitting, if you're standing idly by by definition, you can't be doing good works. You're not interacting with people. You're not inventing things. You're not plowing your fields at the very least. You're not creating food. You're not doing anything. And so this kind of makes that point as well too. Jumping over is a way more aggressive and bold forward momentum than crawling like a baby under.
0: That's exactly right. And so much of Jewish teaching is about telling us how much we can learn by going. So, you know, the Haggadah says, Go and learn. If we want to teach our kids something, we'd say, come here and let me teach you. But no, the haggadah says, go and learn. That's the Jewish notion of learning. You only learn by going. And I actually did a Rabbi's Husband podcast with Ryan Williams, who's a brilliant entrepreneur, the founder and CEO of Cadre, and he chose Psalm 23. And in the discussion of Psalm 23, which is the most brilliant and beautiful meditation on God, perhaps ever written by King David, he was able to write it for one reason, because he was a very talented shepherd. And it's only by going in the world, by being a shepherd, by, by being a media entrepreneur. All the ancient rabbis had professions. That's how you accumulate the wisdom that you're able to share with others.
1: And now the hardest part is, now if, you, if you look at this in the context of COVID, I've always felt that the way to follow the Torah or follow advice is to take a simple understanding of it, right? And basically, if go forward and forward momentum and motion is what is advised, I spent my days in constant motion walking around the office going to meetings meeting interesting people spending time with clients spending time with technology vendors now of course i sat at my desk and i wrote memos and did spreadsheets as well too but i always felt that moving around was important to be in the world covid makes that very very hard how do we go for learning when we're basically stuck in our house all day now i guess the answer is doing things like this you know doing things like virtual conversations is a way of sort of virtually going places, but it does make it harder to abide by that idea when you're cooped up in your house.
0: Right. And, and these are two very different conceptions of how one learns and constantly how one grows. One is you learn by coming or by standing in either case, just staying in place. The other is you learn by leaping and you learn by going. And Judaism is very clearly on the side. You learn by leaping. You learn by going. And yes, there are risks in that process that you don't take when you're staying in place, but walk, leap, and go. That's what Judaism teaches.
1: Or what you could really say that this even relates to is, you know, Moses could have had everybody try to swim across the Red Sea, right? Like, I mean, that that would certainly be the equivalent of, of crawling, right? And by the way, and instead, he didn't even leap over it, he parted it, which is the most bold way of tackling the problem. And, and to, to the point of, of the conventional wisdom is usually right and seldom profitable. I mean, parting the Red Sea is unlikely to work. The conventional wisdom is you're not going to be able to part the sea, right? He takes the very unconventional, long odds bet that he can do it. He does it. He had a good partner, though. Right. But, you know, he, he didn't know if the partner was going to come through or not. You know, maybe, maybe he did. And the most unconventional way of getting through is what kind of brings everybody to safety.
0: Right. And certainly when he led the Jews to the Red Sea, yeah, he, he didn't know that God was, was going to part it and that the timing would work out so precisely.
1: You could even argue that him not entering the promised land is another example of leaping in a way, you know, leaping to another plane, leaping to, to death, leaping to leaving, basically, as opposed to crawling into the promised land. He chooses to take a, a very unconventional approach.
0: Well, God did. Yeah. God told him, uh, you're not going to go because he had. Basically, he had ceased loving the people. And what God was instructing is that uh, you can't lead a people you don't love. I told you to uh, uh, speak to the rock. You struck the rock. You've done a great job, Moses, but you can't lead the people into the
1: promised land. I mean, it is interesting that the Torah is, is filled with these moments of unconvention, these moments of where the strangest thing happens. You know, who would think that you would lead the people for Was it thousands of years in the desert or hundreds of years in the desert? Dozens. Dozens. I I thought that the people, I thought that there was this notion of hundreds.
0: Between the exodus and the entrance to the promised land was 40 years.
1: Okay, fine. So who, 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 you know, you leave for 40 years and then you don't enter where you were taking everybody to. I mean, that's, even though God is the one telling you not to, very, very unconventional, very strange choice.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, getting to what you said before about the kind of unpredictability about troubles, which is, uh. You might have 10 troubles, but they're not the 10 that you think. There's no way that we could have mapped the Jewish journey at any point in Exodus and gotten it remotely right by the end of Deuteronomy. It was all kinds of unconventional occurrences, happenings, twists, turns, and it makes a great story. makes it our story.
1: And knowing also that, you know, having a belief in God is very helpful in the leaping over, basically. Because, you know, when you leap over, you don't know what's going to be on the other side when you crawl, you do have a chance at seeing what's on the other side before you do it. And you know, my other favorite biblical passage or biblical happening is manna, manna from heaven, you know, is, well, how will we, how will we be fed? Well, you know, that's leaping. You're going to go travel in the desert and you don't know what your source of food is going to be. And then suddenly it drops out of the sky every night. Now, what I love about that is that I've, I've read somewhere that you know, what manna actually was, I think I've mentioned this to you, Mark, was actually these densely packed flocks of birds that would migrate during that time of the year. And they would basically collide with each other and some would fall to the ground. And so manna was actually a type of like small poultry, basically. I know you've heard it's pretty different. That it, it was a part of the dew, right? Well,
0: the Torah does say it tasted like wafers dipped in honey.
1: But you're right. And there are instances
0: in Exodus where God is seeming to actually appreciate the Jewish people for the trust we placed in him by going into the desert without any knowledge that what our provisions would be. And then God provides the manna, which is uh, really an act of love and an act of grace. And it really shows who God is, which is that this is the God who cares if we enjoyed our
1: lunch. And I use the expression manna from heaven all the time. I mean, so much so that You know, People on my team actually, they laugh because they know that it's coming. Like When we have something lucky that happens to us in business, I always say, oh, it's manna from heaven, basically. Let everybody know how lucky. Because you get so many unlucky breaks in doing a startup. I think that when you have manna from heaven, you need to recognize it and you need to eat it and not let that opportunity pass.
0: Well, I think it's a great expression you're using, but I don't think you're articulating luck. You're saying, we owe gratitude for this good event, for this good fortune. It's matter from heaven. It comes from God. What a great way to approach good things and to lead others into as well is saying that uh, this great event, it could have easily gone the other way. And it's a gift. And as such, it's a cause for us to be grateful. It's matter from heaven.
1: And a cause for us not to waste it because that gift has been given to us. And so many times you'll be on a call, or you'll be in a meeting and, you know, matter will have just fallen from the heavens and people will be debating, should we should we do this deal? Should we not do this deal? Should well what, well, what about this edge case scenario? You know, and my point to them is it's amazing enough that this has fallen into our lap. Let's certainly take advantage of it. Nothing better is coming along than this matter that's just fallen among us.
0: Great point. And what a great example, too, of um, using biblical wisdom to help uh, both lead people and do better in business. That's what the Bible's for. I mean, the Bible, is the Torah, it's not a law book. It's not a cookbook. It's not a history book, certainly. It's a guidebook, man, for exactly the uses that you're deploying for it at, uh, at Cheddar with such success.
1: Well, and also, you know, when I meet with people now and they tell me their idea for their startup or their company, the first thing I always say to them is there has to be something about this that's totally unique, that's totally different, that may or may not work. And I leave here saying, I don't know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work. If it doesn't have that element of risk and new idea, there's no shot at it being successful. Just copying doesn't work. You know, when I started Cheddar, two years in the Cheddar, when it was successful, when we had started started to show some signs of success, you know, everybody wanted to create the next Cheddar. I want to create a Cheddar for sports. I want to create a Cheddar for uh, for food. I think Cheddar was a Cheddar for sports. But I would say to them is, you can't create Cheddar for sports because I already created Cheddar, right? So you basically have to come up with, you know, something totally different. We started Cheddar and said we were going to do a live news network. Everybody said, oh, that's a terrible idea. People don't want to watch live. Where are you going to put it? And luckily, all of these systems emerged where we could put live content onto that. But you know, my point being is that's where the Bible has so much wisdom, so much wisdom around the unconventional, the odd idea, the thing that has low odds of working, the, the mystical, which enters into things.
0: I would tend to agree with you that, and I think it's so well put and so wise, that an entrepreneur should look for something completely original, which almost by definition is going to be risk-taking. But then I look at something, a, a company like Lyft, which came after Uber. I think it came after Uber. Anyway, one came after the other. And they're both very successful. So can copying work? And, and we can think of other examples too.
1: Right. And I, and I would say that they would probably argue that they did some things very different with Lyft than Uber did, right? And you know, if anything, Uber, you know, maybe the Lyft thing was we were going to be super kind you know, super kind and have a very different... But how different is that from the customer's point of view? I guess different enough that they can split the market, right? And maybe that's the unconventional bet there, you know, is that everyone has a different playbook. My playbook is, is totally unique stuff. I, I don't know how to copy someone and be successful.
0: That's right. I, I'm with you. And that's also a lot of Torah wisdom is that, uh, you know, why, why does God at the Tower of Babel, it says everyone was speaking the same language. In other words, thinking the same way. And God loves genuine diversity properly understood so he changes the languages and disperses the people and you're right each of us has our own different playbook so in this one very narrow context copying a business model might work for somebody it just doesn't work for you or for me okay I wish them the best you know they they should have all the success but it's just not our thing
1: and then there's that company in in I think it's a Russian company that spends all their time basically knocking off U.S. businesses. I can't remember it's a, or a Chinese company. There's like, it's run by, I think, two brothers. And basically all they do is...
0: I believe they're European or... Yeah, exactly. And they identify successful businesses predominantly in the West. And then they bring them to markets where they're not. But actually, it, it would be original to their market. They don't copy in the same market. So, so they take a concept and they bring it to a market where it's not been before, which is innovative.
1: I spent some time with Ben Silverman and Howard Owens, who are two great producers, Ben was the chairman of NBC Entertainment and and brought the office to the US, right? That was a kind of his big, his big claim to fame. And he developed this idea of importing and exporting formats of shows that worked in other markets that had not yet been brought to the particular market that he was introducing it to. That basically was his novel idea. Was it I think I think heretofore the idea had been, well, if a show works in the UK, it's not going to work in the US, right? His idea was we can take these shows, we can tweak them, we can make them work. That's his unique idea. But he was right. And he was right. And now we see that work with shows where they're literally porting with no changes, like Fauda. That's exactly the one that I was going to do. Or you see ones where they're, they, they do a U.S. version of it, basically, mm. and both and both tend to work. I actually think the idea of porting it direct now with subtitles works almost better.
0: Because of the authenticity.
1: Just the authenticity, and I think that we, you know, prior to COVID, we lived in an increasingly global world. We, I guess, even with COVID, we do live in a global world because we all suffer from the same pain. And I think that it's nice for people who have relationships internationally, whether those are digital or person to person, they can share a common show. It's a little, it's a little weird that we have one office and the people in the UK have the other office.
0: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it used to be in the United States before cable that. uh there were a lot more common cultural references because there was a lot less cultural expression. Well, John, thank you so much for such an interesting conversation about this rabbinic commentary, which I, I only learned of because you, you suggested it and taught it to me. Now, the last question, the concluding question, the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible or its commentaries, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So John, in all of your years as really New York's great media entrepreneur of our generation, having started and led so many businesses, what are two things that you've learned about humankind?
1: I'll tell you one thing that's very specific and it may be too narrow, but it's been really important to me, is that certain people are real buyers and then there are people who are not real buyers. And it kind of factors into every aspect of life. The most direct part about it really is with sales, but you can really extrapolate it to anything. There are people that want to do something and are going to do it. And when they express their desire to want to buy something or be part of a project or be part of a team or do an effort, they mean it. And there are certain people that that want to believe that they're ready to do this, that they want to believe that they're ready to take the jump into the new job or the startup adventure or buy the product that's that's different and exciting. But ultimately, they never really were going to do it in the first place.
0: But they learned about themselves in the process.
1: Yes, but they can be very challenging and troubling to the person on the other side that's waiting for them to either buy or join or collaborate and I think it's really important for somebody that is a is a leaper, leaps over and moves forward to be able to quickly identify who has the enthusiasm and energy and is gonna do it and who is just in a sense window shopping. So that's the first thing.
0: Right. They might be window shopping, or I've also I've seen the same thing as you described so well, but I think often people learn about themselves in the process. So at the beginning of the process, the person wants to join the company, the person wants to start the company, the person wants to engage in the new activity. They really do. And then when they drill down on what it's going to take and the risks that are a part of it and the sacrifices which are in, they will often think of all kinds of reasons as to why they shouldn't do this particular thing and they they won't do it. But what will happen is they will have learned about themselves in the process.
1: Absolutely. And then the other one I think about all the time is, No person leads an unencumbered life. And you know what that means is that every single person you deal with is either going through a divorce, dealing with a problem with their child, dealing with the health of of, of an elderly parent, having some struggle. And everybody has a struggle. And so that when you deal with people, you need to have a kindness and empathy around the fact that that they have that those private struggles. And it also creates a kind of warmth for yourself because you yourself have your struggles. And so I think that is a really important way to deal with everybody that you deal with in a given day.
0: Yeah, wonderful. You know, there's, um, there's no word in the Hebrew for a singular face. It's only panim, which is plural, because we all have many faces. Because nobody has one face, there's no point in having a word for it because it doesn't exist. So, you, so you're right. The, the person who's so confident meeting with you in business or in some social situation he or she certainly has some kind of struggle that they're probably not showing to you because that's not the face they have on at that moment.
1: Right. Or someone could even have a face of distress, displeasure, unhappiness, frustration. And you think to yourself, it's because of me. It's because of our work together. And really that face is a face because of these private struggles that they're having. And it makes you, it, it also is you know what we've always learned, which is it's not about, it's not about us. We think everything is about us and I, because that's how human beings are oriented. But the way people are treating and reacting to us is so much more about that person and their struggles and challenges than anything we could do. It's arrogance to think that I'm making you feel this way. Now, look, we're, we're obviously talking about, you don't want to be someone who's deliberately harming other people, but within the realm of people that are not deliberately harming other people, very little of what we're doing is, is making someone feel some way.
0: Right. Very Interesting. Well, John, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about so many subjects all emanating from this uh, really remarkable uh, rabbinic passage that you found.
1: Thank you so much. Well, you know, credit to uh, Rabbi Moshe Shiner at Palm Beach Synagogue for pointing it to me in the first place. I was
0: going to say, we should dedicate this episode to our great mutual friend, uh, Moshe Shiner, who is such a wonderful rabbi and Jewish leader and great thinker. And everybody should get on his daily uh, video uh, distribution list because he has such great Torah wisdom that he produces every day. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Sala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind the scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email Daniel at therabbishusband.com.